The number of natural disasters requiring a federal response seems to be on the rise. Yet the first response agency, FEMA, suffers from staffing shortages. That's one finding of a review by the Government Accountability Office. And no agency can ensure mission success without the right people. We get more now from GAO's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Chris Curry. Mr. Curry, good to have you back. Thank you. Obviously, Congress asked you to look at FEMA, but what was the basis of this look-see and what we were trying to discover here? Well, we've been looking at FEMA's workforce challenges for well over a decade and after Hurricane Katrina. And this is in light of an increasing number of disasters, but not just total number of disasters, but increasing catastrophic disasters. So it used to be in the old days where FEMA was waiting in between large catastrophic disasters to deploy. But nowadays what's happening is they're happening back to back and sometimes sequentially, which has a huge impact on their existing workforce. Well, when something does happen, do they just use the same people and send them where they're needed? Or do they have some kind of a, I don't know, adjunct faculty of part-time people that they can pull together, almost like the Postal Service trying to deliver those test kits? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the misconceptions, I think, with FEMA is that they are just a response agency. So I think when people think of FEMA, they think of the TV or media after, for example, after the Kentucky tornadoes recently, and they see FEMA and the president on the ground talking to survivors. And, you know, a big part of what they do is respond right after a disaster. But a large part of their workforce actually is involved in long-term recovery efforts from prior disasters. Last fall, FEMA told me they had almost a thousand open emergency or disaster declarations from the current or the past. So that means is a lot of their people are actually processing recovery projects, rebuilding projects, all sorts of things from past disasters. Well, the example I like to use is that Hurricane Katrina is still open as an administrative disaster from 16 years ago. Yes, and when that happened, I think FEMA kind of had a role change to be much more early on in disaster response, because prior to that, wasn't FEMA considered almost a secondary responder? They came in with the checks that people needed to get their businesses back running or whatever it was, their housing back together. But they weren't there in the sense of first responders, as you think of as dressing wounds and putting out fires, literally, and putting up dams of sandbags to stave off floods. It's still true today that all disaster response starts at the most local level. I mean, think about it, police, fire, EMS, things like that. But after Hurricane Katrina, FEMA was given the ability to be much more proactive. For example, before a hurricane strikes, they can go ahead and declare an emergency, deploy resources, start assisting the state and local government. And what we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years is they really do a, a pretty good job in the response phase of this. They're very proactive. State and local uh, officials we talk to are really pleased with the help they get from FEMA right before and right after a disaster. I think what becomes frustrating around the country is these longer-term recovery projects where, you know, it's just basically becomes a paperwork and a financial issue of processing grants, uh, building projects, kind of going back and forth with FEMA over the long haul. And so a lot of what FEMA workforce is doing, actually much of it, focuses on processing these grants and these payments and things like that, not on the response piece. So FEMA needs a large response workforce, but it also needs a huge workforce of people to process through the backlog of recovery projects. And so what we've seen recently and what we talked about in the hearing last week was that, you know, as FEMA has more responsibilities for disasters, but then you add on that their significant responsibilities in COVID, 
other things they've been asked to do, like help at the border and help resettle Afghan refugees. It just kind of brought their workforce to a breaking point. We're speaking with Chris Curry, Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. So the shortfall then is in that back office cleaning up so that it should not take 16 years to wrap up the case, if you will, in a Katrina. Right. I mean, they have shortfalls in a lot of different pieces of their workforce. And when I say shortfalls, I don't just mean total numbers, because FEMA has hired around five to 6,000 new people in the last six years, which is a really good thing given their responsibilities. But, you know, it's not just how many people you're hiring. It's also who are you hiring? Are they staying? And then what skills do they have that you need? And this is something that we've seen with FEMA in terms of retention. I mean, it's, it's often difficult to retain some of these folks, particularly you said up front, they have a uh, large reserve workforce. You know, reservists in this day and age with the economy are not easy to keep on staff. Well, with respect to the five or 6,000 people that they have got and the retention problem, what's behind that did you find? And what does FEMA say is the issue with retaining people? Because it sounds like work that is interesting and also highly relevant to people's lives. It is. And I think there is a component of FEMA's workforce that feels strongly about public service. I mean, we get to work with them every day. I think they have a strong culture of public service and strong commitment to their mission. You know, the former administrator of FEMA, Craig Fugate, testified with me at this congressional hearing. And one of the things he talked about is just when folks get on board with FEMA, sometimes they thought they were going to be involved in the immediate response to disasters. But, you know, I mentioned a lot of what they do is processing grants and dealing with paperwork and things like that. And so that may not be quite what they expected to do. And that factors into it. The other thing, too, is, I mean, these are difficult jobs. I mean, reservists have to be ready to deploy and they have to deploy all over the country for long periods of time. And that's not something everybody's in a position to do, either because of their family or their professional situation. And we already have a huge employment challenge in this country right now. So they're competing with other part-time engagements, gig economy, things like that for people that might be um, you know, wanting to serve in this role. And for people doing the work post-disaster, as you say, processing the grants claims and so forth and just seeing things are buttoned up, is the learning curve long there? Because you have to know the federal grant system. You have to know a myriad of rules and regulations that are subject to challenge. You have to know federal finance. It seemed like it's pretty specialized knowledge that would not ordinarily devolve to someone in a couple of weeks after joining. Yes, that's a great point. And training and qualification has been another challenge that we've pointed out. In fact, when we went out throughout the country and talked to FEMA field leaders, these are the folks that are responsible for leading disaster response and recovery throughout the country. They said that FEMA's qualification and training processes are really not keeping pace with the needs. And it's exacerbated when you hire lots of new people, because like you said, these programs are very technical. They require a lot of experience. So field leaders had told us that you know, oftentimes people would be deployed for a certain position or a certain responsibility, and it turns out they didn't really have the skills necessary to do that. So FEMA has a system they call SQS, the FEMA Qualification System, to try to base the skills and training abilities and then deploy people as needed. And over the years, there's just been a number of challenges with that system being able to keep up with the needs in the field. And then you add on top of that just the number of sequential or parallel disasters going on in this country, and it just gets almost 
unmanageable. Like I said, it used to be that there would be a disaster. You know, FEMA folks would go home. They'd have a chance to recoup. The agency would have a chance to reorganize and then get ready for the next hurricane season. That's just not the case anymore. Every day is a disaster season now at FEMA. So it's just compounded over the years. And one of the things we talked about at the hearing, and the former administrator did as well, is just the need to try to transform the workforce to meet what we expect it as a country to do in this day and age. So if you boiled it down to the hard nut of the problem, it's training and education of the people they hire. And then presumably if they're better at what they're doing quicker, they'll stay longer? That's part of it. I think it's everything. I mean, on the front end, it's hiring. I mean, how do we make these jobs attractive and get the people you want in them with the skills? And then once they're in the door, how do you get them trained and qualified as quickly as possible? Because we found in the past that a lot of times reservists, they're deployed. And because they can't actually be paid unless they are working an active disaster, that they're doing training and development on the disaster site. And that's probably not the best environment for training and development. So you know, I think we need to look at flexibilities and authorities that allow FEMA, similar to what the military does, allow allow them to train and develop their folks, possibly, you know, look at protections for them with their other jobs they may have if they are reservists or part-time employees. And all of this is going to feed into retention as well. I mean, if this works well and you get them on board, then you're more likely to retain them, which means you're more likely to retain the experienced people and you don't have to focus so much on training. So it's the whole picture and it's kind of a big cycle. But we need to look at all of it. And, of course, you mentioned Craig Fugate testified. Does the current FEMA management recognize this problem and kind of agree with what you're recommending? Absolutely. We actually met with the current administrator last Friday and discussed the FEMA workforce specifically. And, yes, they are, first of all, they well understand the challenge that the workforce faces and that there are significant reforms that need to be undertaken to address these challenges. And I think they've made that a top priority, at least in their uh, strategic planning and their early plan. Chris Curry is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.